welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 26th of October 2020. This is episode 181. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to author Dr David Murphy, lecturer in military and strategic studies at Maynooth University in Ireland, on his recent book, Breaking Point of the French Army, that looks at the failed Nouvelle Offensive of 1917. This book is published by Pen and Sword. David spoke to me from his home in Ireland. Hi David, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, sure, I mean, I, I work as a historian. I work as a military history lecturer in uh, Maynooth University. But my interest in military history goes back to childhood. Um, in terms of the First World War, I think like a lot of Irish families, um, there were photographs around the house of relations, uh, uh, ancestors of mine who had served. There was very little, uh, when I was at school, there was no discussion of them. Uh, there was there were basically it was a more or less a taboo subject uh, so that really kind of like piqued my interest and I started looking at the Irish involvement in the war and then from that it would have expanded uh, into looking at other aspects of the war as well so it was really it was childhood curiosity uh, really about these photographs that people could tell me nothing about the people themselves or the war they fought on uh, and it also wasn't mentioned in school it wasn't dealt with in school so it was that kind of like curiosity got me started Why did you write a book on the Nivelle Offensive of 1917? do some kind of like basic reading around kind of like the Western Front. You get a consciousness that it is actually quite a big affair in terms of, say, the numbers involved, 1.2 million uh, and kind of like Neville had gathered together for, for this offensive. It's mentioned in books, say, say Richard Holmes's book on the Western Front, um, but there was never great detail. Uh, there was, uh, um, if anybody is, is remembers the, the book edited by Brian Bond, uh, Fallen Stars, there's a chapter in that by Anthony Clayton, uh, which fleshes the stories out a bit more. Um, uh, and then uh, Robert Doughty's book on the French army and World War One Pyrrhic victory uh, devotes a couple of chapters to it. Um, so I was just aware that this was obviously something quite big at the time, but we couldn't, there's not a huge literature on it in English. Um, and I had an opportunity, I was actually in France working on uh, another subject, another project for Trinity College, uh, and I was using French military archives. So I started calling up some for my own research, calling up some of the, the files relating to this, and it just grew out that I realised the more I dug into it the more the file group was actually quite big that there actually was potential here to develop this into a book. And so the central character of of the story is Robert or Robert Nevelle. Could you give us a brief introduction to his background life and career up to 1916? Uh, Sure, I mean he is is, born in 1856 uh, French father, his father was a a military officer as well. Uh, His mother is actually English, uh, a lady called Theodora Sparrow. Theodora Sparrow uh, and her father had actually been uh, was at Waterloo had actually served at Waterloo so he had this combined uh, he was a French English background um, and it's interesting he had fluent fluent English um, and it's interesting when he he rises to prominence in the French army uh, he could charm people like like George Field Marshal Robertson etc etc he was always very good at interacting uh, with British generals British officers not so much uh, Field Marshal Haig so basically trains as an artillery officer uh, has a reasonably what I suppose you could imagine 
mentioned a, a standard French career, French officer's career, he, uh, serves in North Africa. He's involved with the, the French force during the Boxer Rebellion in uh, China in 1900. And when war breaks out in 1914, he is essentially a reasonably obscure colonel, uh, artillery colonel, because of his age. He's kind of heading towards retirement, but he distinguishes himself uh, at First Marne and also First Battle of the Aina in uh, 1914. Quite uh, a switched-on officer, quite calm under under fire, uh, had a tendency to advance his his uh, artillery regiment through retreating infantry to engage the head of kind of like German divisions advancing. Uh, so becomes this kind of heroic figure and he accelerates from colonel, becomes general of brigade and by the Verdun battles of 1916, he's a, he's a major general um, and he has some success in those operations he, he develops uh, a kind of a, a creeping barrage method he develops a method as well that he refers to as a tunnel or a corridor of fire uh, where he masses his artillery and basically uses it to to provide to cut a, a line of artillery fire into the German lines behind which uh, infantry can advance a very very focused idea um, and he uses that to retake the, the fort at Duomo in uh, October 1916 and and all of a sudden, he's a national national hero. Um, he's a good man for the soundbite. Uh, the, the 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 French the phrase we often refer to with the French army, they shall not pass. That is actually his. We quite often it's attributed uh, to General Pétain, but it's actually it's in the Ville's phrase. Uh, so by December 1916, uh, when the commander in chief looks that Joffre is about to be replaced, he emerges as the most likely candidate to follow him. So quite a meteoric rise from colonel to contender for chief of staff or chief of uh, commander-in-chief uh, by December 16. So how did he actually get the top job as commander-in-chief of the French army in December 16? Many of the listeners will know that Joff is actually moved to one side, a special advisor to the government, and it's a, it's actually it's a non-promotion. It's a way of getting rid of him. Uh, and then there's there's a casting about of who um, the next chief and chief uh, commander-in-chief would be. There's other contenders. Uh, Foch is a contender. He's dismissed. He's seen as being too religious, too Catholic. And remember, this is a republic in France. It's a republic, so there's Republican issues here. Peytan is considered, he's considered to be too gloomy and you've got other characters who are considered not to have been successful enough. Um, so really, Neville is the right man at the right time. He's politically acceptable. There is a, a, a kind of like, there's a, a PR, there's a press chatter about his success going on at the time. So he emerges as the most credible, credible person. Uh, and I think also in terms of his nature, he is very affable. He is very positive. Uh, you remember kind of at the end of you know 1916, the French have lost over half a million casualties in Verdun alone and you have this general officer who kind of is pointing forward look I have these ideas I can use these on a bigger scale and we can we can actually win so those factors like to combine and he emerges as the best of, of the possible choices to become the commander-in-chief and so what was the state of the French army um, before the start of his offensives in spring 1917? It's absolutely shattered. I mean, um, I mean, when you look at just the, the casualty statistics, I mean, by the end of 15, by the end of 1915, they'd lost over 600,000 fatal casualties. And then you throw out the operations of 1916 on top of that, another half a million casualties for, for Verdun. So it's... In terms of its manpower shrinking, it's uh, they're, they're finding they actually have to um, call up conscripts early uh, to get them into the ranks to expand the army. Uh, they go through a reform in terms that they, they decrease the number 
of the visions and etc etc so in terms of manpower in terms of morale it's pretty shattered um, they're also in the spring of 1917 you've got events in Russia and that is not lost on the French army and the French public uh, as well so it's a very very delicate time um, I think most commentators looking at it would, would say you know the French army has enough in it for one more push and that push becomes uh, Robert Neville's offensive and um, there are some more positive things I mean they're, they're say their aeronautical arm is improving uh, they, they've had two tank projects two tank development projects and they have developed uh, tanks in numbers so they're going to be used for the first time so in terms of materiel uh, there's more of that on the battlefield but I would say in terms of morale the army is at a crisis point so what was Neville's plan for his spring offensive and why was he so confident of success in 1917 well so he went around kind of like saying things like I have the method I have the formula um, and what essentially he was going to do he was going to repeat the, the methods he'd used on in, in around Verdun the Verdun fighting uh, and now those methods were successful in a very focused and a very limited way but he thought he could expand them over a vast area so he's what essentially he's planning to do is cut uh, make huge use of artillery basically a, a rolling barrage that's going to going to uh, shield the troops as they go forward at the same time uh, absolutely an intense barrage basically to build these corridors within to the depth of the German defences so that the men can advance uh, so he's going to basically let the, uh, another one of his phrases that is quite often attributed to Patan is you know that the, the artillery kills the infantry occupies so it's the whole idea that intensive fire corridors will allow people to get into the depth of the uh, German defence and they cause mayhem uh, he's keeping back he has about 100 uh, 1.2 million uh, troops for this he has over 100 tanks and he thinks that's going to be significant as well uh, the first time the French kind of like use tanks in the field is in this uh, mass attack um, so that he thinks that's going to be useful too so he's gathered all this together and essentially what he's going to do is replicate say the Duomont counteroffensive, but on a vast front not a focused front so where exactly did the attack um, take place that he was planning and what was his topography like and also what was the nature of the German defences that he was seeking to overwhelm yeah I think I mean I, I'm sure plenty of visitors have travelled along it's along the Shimandi Dam uh, it was his, it was the focus of his target and there was kind of a bend in the German line there and he thought if he could attack say to the, say, the east of that elbow in the line he, that would then give him access to go in and, and consolidate behind the German defences. Um, but there's a bend in the line there. Um, it is quite a hilly neck of the woods. It is the, the road nexus, what remained of the road nexus, cuts through gorges, which is allows, you know, is good for defenders to kind of like channelise and kind of like cut down attackers. Um, but I think, so you've got a, quite a hilly, mountainy kind of like background that he's advancing into, hard on infantry, hard on tanks, now, not great tank country. Um, and then, but a key features you have actually you have there's a canal and then beyond the canal there's the Ina River so before the troops essentially would get into major contact with Germans they had to affect a canal crossing and a river crossing and then they would be in contact and as they went into contact they would be going into the German defence which was a defence in depth this stage it went back five six seven kilometres into the German lines a lot of prepared positions a lot of festung positions blockhouses uh, some of them are still there if people are visiting that neck of the woods they can still find them and um, very cleverly laid out to uh, mutually support. Um, there's also been a security breach. The the, the, the Germans had a hold of plans um, and Neville was not great at his own operational security. Um, so the Germans were expecting them and the Germans had pre-arranged their artillery fire, set up MP, MP positions to, or MG positions to, to mutually support each other. So defensively, the troops were walking into a nightmare. The French troops were walking into a nightmare. Um, quite often when you look at accounts at the time, uh, like 
French soldiers refer to advancing forward and then being fired on from behind because the, the Germans had actually organised stay behind pillboxes etc uh, to attack advancing troops in, from different angles as they advanced so a very intense kind of like uh, uh, kind of a defensive network but the topography in itself gave the Germans huge advantage so tell us what happened in the attack it, it's to be honest it's it's a disaster <laughs> I mean I, the first I mean the first 48 hours are for the French are about 120,000 casualties um, now the upside in that to capture 20,000 Germans and quite a lot of equipment and I think if that kind of success had come earlier uh, they would have a more positive feeling about it but there's about 120,000 casualties in the first two days by the time it is actually closed down uh, by the at the start of May they're, they're close to 190,000 casualties and uh, most of the casualties for the French come in the first 48 hours and um, Neville has also promised to call it off in 48 hours if he doesn't have success which he does not do um, so essentially it is it is a very familiar tale for uh, I suppose people who have been studying World War One. Uh, infantry go forward overrun their artillery the artillery doesn't kind of keep up with the rates of advance and um, they then get slaughtered by German positions they get they're fallen upon by German reserves uh, the tanks that are supposed to do so much heavy lifting uh, perform very very badly and suffer severe casualties um, so it is just one of those those typical World War One nightmares um, quite often as well in French accounts they, they talk uh, about the accuracy of the German counter battery fire the accuracy of the German artillery fire in general as they try to advance forward they're just being being slaughtered um, and significant in this as well at the at the time of the battle um, there's a, a kind of quite a severe weather incident it's the coldest uh, early April in, in kind of like something like 25 years uh, so you've got sleet you've got frost you've got heavy rain um, and also the French Air Force loses air control so they cannot spot for their own artillery etc etc so a combination of factors radiates your your standard World War One mess and did the attacks that the British launched around Arras uh, further north actually help at all or did they make no major Im- impact in, in the consequence of the of the offensive well I think I mean when you look at those attacks the Vimy attacks and the Arras attacks that is designed to be a distraction um, they are I suppose the successful part of this of this phase of operations but you do not draw away enough um, you do not draw away enough um, German troops remember that the Germans have actually withdrawn from a section of their line in early 1917 they've actually drawn back to consolidate fence shorten the line and basically have a capacity for more reserves etc etc so the B, the, the attacks put in by the BEF Canadian troops etc uh, simply don't draw away enough Germans and as I said the Germans know down because they've captured plans they've captured kind of like French soldiers and there's so much loose talking around uh, Nivelle's HQ they know down to the day that this is starting so they're prepped they're ready for it so what were the consequences to morale and discipline in the French army as, as a result of the failure of the offensive well I suppose as one, kind of, one might expect it there is a total collapse uh, as I said previously there's a general consensus they've got they've got enough for one more push and um, so they've tried that Neville has promised so much I mean there's such heightened press discussion about this that this is war over within a week there's such expectation in this and then it just it just falls apart uh, while the offensive is, is still going on you will find units start refusing to move out to the front or you have this what we refer to I suppose as acts of disobedience you know people being ordered to form up to march uh, being slow to get into ranks um, being arriving into ranks without their kit without their weapons etc etc and that slowly deteriorates till by early May and then through June the army is in a state of uh, what's often referred to as mutiny and other commentators will refer to it as a strike um, but 
basically it's non-operational um, and we have that phase of mutiny then that grips the French army in the summer of 1917 that in turn will result in some quite repressive measures and over something over 3,000 court marshals over 2,800 sentences to things like uh, hard labour in labour camps Devil's Island that kind of stuff 40 it is said 49 executions but there's reason to believe more there's definitely there's definitely what you would refer to as roadside executions or kind of um, what would you refer to if, you know an officer arrives in a situation that's bad and he does the extrajudicial execution on the spot to calm everything down uh, we know those happen so the numbers executed are obviously much higher and um, so I think by the end of by June you could argue that the French army is broken and it's really not fit for major offensive action for the rest of the year um, uh, I mean part of Pétain's duty when he takes over in May is to basically rebuild it uh, operationally get it working again and rebuild the morale and totally reform it so that it will have some role um, hopefully to play later on in the year uh, but it's interesting I mean when you look at some of Haig's uh, I mean obviously the French try and keep the worst from the from the BEF from, from Haig and his general staff but you know by the summer of 1917 Haig is starting to wonder will, I, will, will this be will it, are we going to be left on our own here or is France going to drop out of the war totally uh, and it will become BEF Belgian army trying to hold on in Flanders etc uh, so it's a very very dodgy part for the Allies in general and what, what ex- one question that's always intrigued me did the Germans know what was going on in the French units no no I mean it, it is it is it's quite often identified as the single biggest German intelligence lapse of the war um, they they do get inklings uh, from POWs from deserter, but, deserters but apparently I mean two things you know they're, they're quite engaged elsewhere uh, kind of in around Flanders like dealing with the BEF uh, and then another aspect is they just can't believe these rumours that are coming in uh, they think that's just too good to be true um, but you know if they could have organised any kind of an offensive action major offensive action back then uh, the French army would have just been found wanting they, they were not in a, a fit state So what was, what was the legacy of Nouvelle's offensive? I mean it's, it's it, it is absolutely it's, it's a total uh, you can judge this various ways it's a totally painful period in French memory and French history um, I mean if you look at say the Verdun which is obviously highly traumatic but at least there's a positivity at the end of that they have that they have actually held that line so Verdun is costly but there is a positive there are no positives in this uh, and it's it's a very deep wound um, it, it has been avoided by French generally by French historians up until recently uh, it has not been hugely memorialised um, again in the last say 10 years or so there have been a series of memorials put up in the Chemin de Dan to, to mark this um, it is I think I suppose for people who study the BEF and the British experience and you know you would remember Tordip and Passchendaele as that absolute nadir of 1917 and maybe the, the absolute bottom point of the British British Canadian Australian experience in World War One. Um, the, the Neville offensive is that French there's nothing positive to take out of this and it's much worse I think than any of the British experiences because the French army is without a doubt broken absolutely broken at the end and what happens to Neville for the rest of his career Oh guys, okay. it's, it's it's quite it's it's quite a it's quite a roller coaster ride. I mean, as I said, December sixteen, he is basically can do no wrong. Um, by the end of April, when all this the offensive is going so badly wrong, the call there are calls for him to be replaced. He is the Peyton takes on his comes in as chief of staff, and then he officially takes over as commander in chief uh, on fifteenth of May. But uh, Neville is still hanging around his office for a number of days. Like his staff have deserted him. Uh, there's recrimination and shouting matches. 
uh, and eventually he has to slink out of his office and, and disappear. Now he will do, uh, later on he will do a kind of like, because he speaks English, he does this goodwill fundraising tour, recruiting tour, fundraising tour in the States. And then he gets posted to, um, he gets posted to North Africa, which is where he is uh, at the end of the war in 1919. Uh, it's interesting, and I, fa- I actually start my book with this from the point of view that there's a, there's a big, uh, I suppose, in the first um, anniversary at the end of the war, there's a big commemoration um, in Paris. A big, uh, and, and basically, everybody is, is, is rehabilitated. Bastille Day 1919 is quite a big affair. Various generals who have not um, done well are rehabilitated, including Joffre is brought back. But Neville is, Neville is left in North Africa. And he just goes into obscurity and he dies in 1924. Um, he leaves us very little. He never publishes memoirs. Um, there is obviously his correspondence exists um, in, in French military archives, his, his official correspondence, but there's no volume of memoir. Um, I think from a British perspective as well, there's a very interesting uh, collection of correspondence in queue between him or at least his staff and uh, Field Marshal Haig's staff in the run up to the Neville Offensive. And that's a, that makes for an interesting read. And finally, David, where can people learn more? Um, well, if, if people are inclined, my book is, was published by Pan and Sword um, back in 2015. Uh, so that might be a good, available in all good bookshops, book WH Smiths, etc., etc. Uh, so that might be a good place to start. In other, in other respects, I mean, there is now, there is a, a museum of the Chemin des Dames. So if anybody's over in France touring around, uh, it is well worth a spot, uh, a stop off to look at this. Uh, that includes a place called the, 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 the Dragon's Cave, which was the scene of lots of uh, sub Mediterranean fighting. So there is stuff um, on the ground for people to see if they should be should they be over there. David, thank you very much for your time. No, no problem. You're welcome. You have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.